Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser joins Brownstein shareholders Alyssa Garden Schwartz and Sarah Mercer for a discussion about the future of antitrust enforcement, ensuring consumer protection while supporting innovation, and issues arising from the pandemic, including price gouging and evictions. Welcome to another episode of the Brownstein podcast series. I'm Sarah Mercer, and I am thrilled to be here for this very special episode. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Alyssa Gardenschwartz, and we have with us today Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Attorney General Weiser, thanks so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be with you guys. Uh, really appreciate you having this discussion. And Alyssa, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks, Sarah, for uh, uh, having us on. This is going to be an excellent discussion, I'm sure. So by way of background, before we kind of dive into what's going on in the attorney general space here in Colorado, but also a little bit kind of around the country, like what an attorney general does, um, what they're responsible for, and then, um, you know, some sort of specific areas of interest uh, for our listeners, I want to just give a brief background. So Alyssa Garden-Schwartz is my colleague at Brownstein, and she has incredible experience in this area. She, just before coming over to the firm, served as the deputy attorney general for consumer protection in our Colorado AG's office. She oversaw all of the consumer protection and antitrust enforcement um, activities. She's no stranger to the legislature. When Colorado passed its uh, most recent update to the data protection and data breach notification law, Alyssa was there testifying on that bill. Um, She was really the architect of that language. And she got her start Uh, at the Federal Trade Commission in the Bureau of Competition. So she definitely has great expertise in this area. Attorney General Weiser is our 39th uh, Attorney General. Uh, He was elected back in 2018, took the helm uh, in 2019, and serves as our state's chief legal officer. His work and what the office oversees, in addition to the areas of consumer protection and antitrust that Alyssa has her expertise in, include things like dealing with the opioid epidemic, criminal justice reform, and also very importantly to call all Coloradans protecting our land, air, and water. A.G. Weiser has dedicated his life to law, justice, and public service. He served as the dean of CU Law School. He was my constitutional law professor, I'm very, very proud to say. And he founded the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship, which has really been the hub of Colorado's entrepreneurial business activity. Uh, We have a very, we're sort of the Silicon Valley of the West or the Rocky Mountains, if you will. And that's really in large part to Attorney General Weiser's efforts with the Silicon Flatiron Center. In addition to that, A.G. Weiser spent some time in Washington, D.C., working in the Department of Justice. He was on President Obama's transition team. Um, He oversaw the the Federal Trade Commission in that role and also served in President uh, Bill Clinton's administration as well. The start of his legal career was serving as a law clerk um, to both Justices Byron White and Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the U.S. Supreme Court and um, to our very own Tenth Circuit Judge uh, David E. Bell here in Colorado. So, Thanks you both for being here. Um, We're going to dive in, I think, to antitrust. And Alyssa, I'm going to kind of kick it over to you. It would be great for our listeners in thinking about antitrust 
to be able to uh, have an understanding maybe of, you know, kind of what is, what does an attorney general do? You know, you served in the office and then, you know, maybe you can kind of dive into that, to the antitrust piece of this. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and again, thank you, Attorney General Weiser, Bill, for being with us today and um, starting with the topic of antitrust, which is um, both where you and I started in our respective practices. And to Sarah's question and a bit of background, you know, the attorneys general are along with the federal antitrust agencies, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are responsible for antitrust enforcement, which includes addressing anti-competitive conduct as well as potential anti-competitive effects that can come up in the context of mergers and acquisitions. And so, Phil, I want to start by talking about, you know, as you know, there has been a shift in antitrust thinking, even since we started in this area now 20 plus years ago, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, there's different thinking in terms of how to describe anti-competitive conduct. There's different thinking um, about how you articulate consumer harm as a result of anti-competitive conduct. And I wanted to see if you could talk about how this shift in um, antitrust thinking, how you see that playing out in enforcement. And I think, you know, in large part, I'm interested to see if you agree with this. I think the shift in thinking has been occasioned by the growth of the technology sector, and in particular, the emergence of certain large players within that sector. So again, um, interested to hear your thoughts on how this new thinking plays out in enforcement, in particular enforcement done by state attorneys general. So Alyssa and Sarah, it's really delight to have this conversation. The challenge with the question you asked is that could be our topic for a whole hour. So I'm going to try <laughs> to break it down and offer some high points, starting with a book I'm now reading called The Bully Pulpit by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which talks about Roosevelt and Taft. And that moment is a little bit like this moment, by which I mean more and more concentrated power from an industrial perspective. There was industrialization. And for them, it was often talked about as the rise of the trust. A lot of people today say, why do we call it antitrust law? The rest of the world calls it competition law, but we still use our phrase antitrust law. And it's because of that moment where companies were packaged up under this heading of being a trust to control large parts of an industry. And, and the phrase we use now in antitrust law is, is there monopoly power? Monopoly power means that basically people don't have any other choice. And there is concern about monopoly power in a number of technology companies. Uh, in the 1990s, when I was working in the antitrust division, was a historic case against Microsoft, which was then the technology uh, behemoth, you could say, because Microsoft Windows powered uh, then computing. And the concern was how could Microsoft use that control in one generation of technology to undermine competition and innovation in new generations of technology. The, the particular concern was middleware, which was then the Netscape browser, which was a platform that was being developed that threatened to undermine the then dominant Microsoft operating systems. 
That's the sort of concern that we're asking today. And what's worth underscoring here is just like what Theodore Roosevelt believed in the early 1900s, just because you are a big company doesn't mean you're necessarily bad. Um, there's a second key element, which is has the company engaged in predatory or anti-competitive or exclusionary practices that's undermined competition? And that's the question we ask under the monopolization statute. And the Sherman Act is a beautiful piece of legislation because it could really fit on just a couple pages. Section 1 deals with uh, what you might think about as cartels or uh, conspiracies where companies get together and say, let's fix our prices and then we'll be better off and the customers are worse off. When I was at the DOJ the first time, we had this really big case against Archer Daniels Midland. It later became a movie with Matt, Matt Damon um, and it talked about this conspiracy that was a cartel. In the case of Microsoft, it was Section 2, monopolization. Those are the two key sections of the Sherman Act, which you might call concerted conduct and unilateral conduct. And what has happened, you've referred to, Alyssa, is often talked about as the Chicago School Revolution, where there was a very successful movement to discredit predation as a viable strategy of protecting monopoly power. And the premise, and, and Judge Easterbrook is, is famous for this, is that the market will overcome monopoly power, but if you have legal interventions to address monopoly abuses, you may end up with lasting legal interventions, say a consent decree, that actually doesn't get displaced even as the decree becomes irrelevant or counterproductive. And that's the uh, concerned first by Judge Bork. Judge Easterbrook then also picked up this mantle. And the question is, is our problem too much or too little antitrust enforcement? And the Chicago School premise was the problem is too much antitrust enforcement. And active antitrust enforcement would be a problem. And that has undermined areas of legal doctrine, such as predatory pricing, which is an area that in the 1990s were a real concern. When I was at DOJ, we brought a case against American Airlines for predatory pricing. And the courts turned that case away effectively on Chicago school reasoning. So in this moment, like Theodore Roosevelt's moment, we need to establish the vitality of antitrust enforcement. And I believe that the cautiousness we have seen is probably overly cautious and unfortunate because we're now seeing more concentration than we've ever seen. We're seeing less signs of entry than we've seen. And it is a real concern for the future of our economy. A vital economy requires competition, innovation, opportunities to entry, and antitrust enables that. Where you don't get enough antitrust enforcement and you don't get enough competition, you worry about lasting dominance of companies, which then raises a whole conversation. Are these companies natural monopolies and subject to regulation? We can have a whole discussion about the airline industry, which at one time was viewed as a natural monopoly that had regulation. Then there was a commitment to competition and robust antitrust enforcement. But as I mentioned with the American Airlines case, some of that got turned away. Then we saw a whole bunch of mergers in airlines. And now we're worried about too much concentration in airlines. So we have a real challenge in our economy. Antitrust enforcement plays a real part. And part of what we're going to be working to establish is that effective antitrust enforcement can be done as a form of law enforcement and can make a real difference in the lives of consumers. There's a real ebb and flow, it sounds like. I mean, your airline, the, the airline example is such a good one, this kind of ebb and flow of business interests and what happens in a market. And that authority does seem so, so important and critical to attorneys general. What was the legislation that we saw pass uh, this year in Colorado regarding uh, the authority of the AG with respect to mergers uh, and antitrust issues? 
I'm a big believer in federalism and the form of federalism that I believe we have is I call a cooperative federalism, which basically means the feds are able to set a basic level of protection, but insofar as there is deficiency on the federal level, the states are able to pick up the slack, experiment, do more, try new things. The courts are ultimately the arbiter of how far states can go, whether it's in environmental protection or antitrust law. In Colorado, we had this really screwy law. I would call it a, a self-inflicted injury where Colorado uh, law enforcement was limited by federal action. If the federal government approved a merger, the Colorado law that we fixed was a loophole that said Colorado uh, AG's office could not act. I find that offensive, which is to say it's a federal government uh, takes a pass on a merger, but we think it's anti-competitive. We should have the full authority to challenge it under both federal and state law. Uh, we didn't until we fixed this loophole. Now we do. And others, I mean, other states have this, like you like you suggested, this was a little bit of a loophole in Colorado. So it's sort of almost putting us on the same footing with most of the other states too, which is certainly important. Absolutely. And it's worth noting that you can get states acting on their own. We've done that here in Colorado under my leadership. Actually, I think for the first time, maybe you can get states acting with other states. Um, that's happened in a few cases. Uh, the Sprint T-Mobile merger, initially Colorado was concerned about it, but then we entered into a settlement and, and dropped our concern. And then you could get the states with the feds um, challenging uh, mergers as anti-competitive. Sure. And, you know, I think you talked a little bit about the importance of being able to have this voice and to be able to, you know, participate in this process, kind of connecting that to this idea of, of ensuring that the market is allowing for innovation and regulation. Um, you know, antitrust work and enforcement really does at the end of the day is really for the benefit of the consumer at the end of the day to ensure that companies don't get too much power and are able through their monopoly to, uh, to kind of dictate the terms to consumers rather than allowing consumers to be able to interact more fairly uh, with the with the market players. And, you know, Alyssa, I know that you have some very good expertise, um, but, you know, thinking about kind of that consumer protection more at that consumer level, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of this like intersection of innovation and regulation? Is there anything that's been on your mind lately? Thanks, Sarah. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about. Um, uh, it's something I thought about both when I was in the office and now certainly um, being on the other side of things is this intersection between innovation and regulation. And, you know, you have particularly in the, um, the financial technology sector, fintech sector, companies that are coming up with products that are designed to be alternatives to our traditional credit and lending models, such that um, access to credit is expanded among the, the population, which is certainly something that's um, important now um, as we are in the midst of an economic downturn and something that we'll, we'll talk more about later in that regard. But, you know, there's this tension between allowing these new products to come to market, including products that are also dealing with uh, education finance, such as income share agreements, where instead of students taking out traditional loans, they are uh, entering into agreements with schools or direct ISA providers to um, have their education financing uh, advance to them. And in exchange, they agree to pay a percentage of their income 
after graduation for a set period of time, um, not to exceed a, a certain amount, um, and provided they're they're making a certain amount of money. You know, we're looking at these models, and you know, there's some discussion about whether they fall within existing regulatory structures. Um, versus whether or not they don't fall within existing regulatory structures, or do they require a new regulatory framework to ensure that consumers are protected when these products are rolled out? And so, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about and writing about. And Phil, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this subject about how consumer protection authorities should be addressing innovation and what their role is um, as these products come to market. In particular, I would love to hear you talk about the your decision to join the American Consumer Financial Innovation Network, which is a um, something that was started by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and several state regulator offices to enable a dialogue between the folks that are bringing um, financial new financial products to market and enforcers without there being the initial threat of investigation enforcement to, you know, to foster a dialogue. So interested to hear your thoughts on that. Let me offer a few different thoughts. First, starting on innovation. And we had the introduction that was overly kind by Sarah, but my background absolutely is in innovation and in entrepreneurship. So I am a fan and believer that we can and should encourage enable innovation that calls on us to evaluate whether regulation ever is a break on innovation in the worst of the world incumbents regulate entrants to limit their effectiveness and so we have to be thinking about that concern at the same time we have to think about a, a different concern which is would someone seek to come in with a new service or business model that would skirt regulations that serve valid protections. Um, we've seen a very robust conversation of late around, for example, ride-sharing platforms like Uber and Lyft, and to what extent um, there are important public policies that govern, call it taxi cab-like services, or to what extent we had legacy regulations that limited entry and that hurt consumers. And so the goal, and I think this was stated very well by Sarah, is we've got to make sure we're protecting consumers. That's the ultimate test. And if income share agreements, take one example, are helping consumers and are done in a way that serve consumers and that meet um, important concerns, um, that's a great addition to the market. Uh, if, however, they're really motivated by an effort to get around important protections, then not so much. And so that's part of what the work we've got to keep doing. And I'm a big believer in the dialogue. And I always encourage companies to come in earlier. This is a mistake sometimes companies make, which is they'll think our goal is to hide from the regulators and to hope that we're not noticed. Uh, I would strongly encourage, tell the regulators what you're doing, tell them why you believe it benefits consumers and start a dialogue. And, and that's what the Financial Innovation Network spirit is. And that's the spirit that I believe in. And I just want to, I do want to follow up on that and um, note that you are the, the only, the last time I checked, you're the only Democratic AG that has joined ACFIN, which I, I appreciate in that when I was in the office, I was often in the position of trying to encourage um, my Republican boss to join in efforts 
where they might be the only Republican AG as part of the effort. And I think there's this sort of nice tradition in Colorado of um, the office really um, approaching issues uh, beyond sort of the political lens. And I, I don't know if you feel that way about your decision to join ACFIN, but um, I, I just, I, fear, I want you to know I very much appreciate that because I know that's, um, it's kind of a, a, a difficult um, needle to thread. For me, it's about principle over party. What makes this attorney general job special, um, and John Southers and I have talked a, a bit about this, is for me, this is primarily a legal job and I work hard to, subordinate the politics. Uh, it is hard. We're living in a moment of great polarization, and it is um, often the case that matters are framed in uh, highly politicized terms. Uh, I work really hard to try to, to, on every single issue, think through the merits of it and work with as broad a coalition as we can. Um, there are times when I'm suing the federal government because I believe they're violating core principles, such as um, refusing to implement the Affordable Care Act or even defend it against uh, some Republican state AGs. So I find myself suing the federal government when principle calls for that. I also find myself working with um, the federal government here, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when there's a, a good principle, which is how do we encourage innovation and how do we have a dialogue about new opportunities where concerns might be that um, regulation could get in the way. And that's a conversation that it's important to have. Um, I come at this from being a student of regulation and innovation, uh, more in the technology space, sort of telecom internet. But I, I recognize that could apply to fintech as well, which is what intrigued me about this opportunity. And we need to keep that spirit because too often, if we view things as red team, blue team, we're not listening to each other. Um, we're not getting the benefit of dialogue. And I, I treasure relationships I have with Republican AGs, particularly ones where we can have honest conversations. How do you see this? How do you see that issue? And I, I, I love hearing that. I really absolutely, I mean, I'm just, sorry, I'm, I'm compelling. Um, but I do think that that is, again, I think that's something that I was really proud of the office for doing when I was there. And I'm um, thrilled to see you continuing that tradition. Let me make a plug. You talked about the AG Alliance, which is a part of the uh, Western Attorneys General. Um, I do believe that us in the West have this spirit, uh, independent spirit, pioneering spirit. We want to see issues and make progress on the substance, not play political games. And so I, I hold true to that uh, great Colorado tradition. And I think that's such a great segue, that sort of nonpartisan approach, because it really is beyond bipartisan. It's you're really articulating a very nonpartisan approach. It, it, it's a perfect segue into really the last topic that Alyssa and I wanted to touch on in our conversation with you, which relates to the pandemic and, um, you know, these kind of these COVID-19 specific issues. You know, certainly we're anticipating that uh, we're, we're now in a recession. I think this economic downturn is going to be with us for a little while. But really specifically, I mean, you took pretty swift action when the legislature, you know, resumed uh, after the break that they had to take in, in, in March and in April to deal with issues around price gouging, which Colorado didn't have before. So why was that important to pass that price gouging legislation rather than just relying on your general um, authority? Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit to us about that? I want to take a step back because when I first got here, we didn't even have a catch-all provision. We had a consumer protection law that basically said, if you're not doing something wrong within an enumerated category, you can get away with it. Even if 
a reasonable person would think what you did was unconscionable or deceptive. So the first step was to fix our overly limited consumer protection law. I think we ranked something like 47th in the nation. So last year, we fixed the law. We now have what you might call a catch-all authority to go after unfair, deceptive, and unconscionable trade practices. I believe that extreme price gouging, which means when you don't charge someone what other reasonable sellers are charging, but you take advantage of an opportunity to gouge them, that's a, to my mind, unconscionable act. The legislature wasn't going to um, simply let that catch-all authority be tested. It's been proven in other states to cover such conduct. They wanted to make sure there was no question. And so they enacted a specific uh, provision that has a violation for price gouging. Now, what they didn't do, and I really appreciate this, is they didn't pick some artificial percentage. Instead, they used a unreasonably excessive standard, which means if you're charging a lot more than a reasonable seller, uh, and there's no basis for that, that is opportunistic selling. You are taking advantage of people in a way that's unfair, and we can go after you. And that's what the legislature wanted to make sure we covered, and I appreciated their commitment to doing that. There are other, you know, issues that consumers in Colorado are going to be facing. I mean, you know, a big topic of discussion as the legislature was winding down was eviction. I know you had come out in support of the governor's moratorium on evictions. Um, Alyssa and I noticed that uh, your office is helping to support an eviction assistance series for small businesses. Eviction pro bono is something that uh, our law firm has long participated in. I actually, I just got my first case this week um, to help an individual on a residential eviction issue. Um, this is something that is going to be, you know, really at the forefront for Coloradans uh, here coming up. What is the AG's office relationship with evictions and how, how else are you guys helping? First, I want to give a plug for something we're doing, which is on the small business side. It's really important to talk about consumers, and I will, uh, again, because that is such a core concern. But I, but I want to start with small businesses because the risk in this moment of COVID to small businesses is extraordinary. Estimates range, but the numbers are uh, um, super painful about how many small businesses are going to close and not make it and never come back. We have set up in our office working with uh, the uh, good people um, in the, the Colorado Lawyers Committee, Connie Talmadge, is – an effort to get lawyers to step up and help small businesses, including negotiating their rent, because if small businesses can't figure out a way to pay their rent, they're going to get evicted and they're going to have to close. And a lot of times small businesses lack legal representation to handle such issues. So please, um, if you're a small business and need help, look up this initiative. Let us help you. We're having a webinar this week talking about this very issue on the small business front. On the consumer front, I'm worried about this too, Sarah, and we're encouraging support uh, to represent people who often aren't represented in the form of evictions, and we're going to work on a couple different fronts, um, one with hopefully on the lender side and the others on the court side to see what we can do. We're concerned, and the overall concept that I've talked about before is we've got to find ways to create more grace in the system to give people some slack as they're having troubles making ends meet, which has been an issue we've worked on with the student loan front. We're going to keep working on it with the um, renting front. If we have too much basically coming down on people to make payments they can't afford, you're going to end up with extreme situations where people are forced into terrible choices, where people are going to become homeless, and it's going to further this crisis. Well, there's going to be a lot of work to do, um, a lot of work for a lot of people. And, you know, I do hope that uh, attorneys 
who can find a little bit of time to help both small businesses and individuals who are facing evictions. It's an area of law that we have a lot of resources, the Colorado Lawyers Committee that you mentioned, the Colorado Poverty Law Project. Uh, They have a lot of resources for lawyers, even if this isn't our area of expertise, we can get up to speed enough to be able to help. And as you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of helping out with uh, some of the negotiations, having a conversation with a landlord on behalf of a client who's a tenant uh, to help move things along and make sure that that business or that individual and their family get to stay in their home or in their place of business so that the fallout from what we've been experiencing doesn't hit so deep and that we give people a chance to kind of keep keep going and, and to make it through. So thank you so much again, um, Attorney General Weiser. It's, it's just such a thrill to be able to talk with you. We really appreciate the time. And uh, I also want to reiterate my thanks for your time. Um, we really appreciate you joining us today to talk about issues that we know um, are near and dear to your heart and uh, near and dear to ours as well. So thank you again. It's a pleasure. I can talk about these issues all day and um, thanks for helping get the word out. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.